error, heresy, and blood in the paedo-baptist water. Mind you, there are many paedo-baptist baby baptizers that are our brothers and sisters in Christ that we love. That doesn't change the reality of the serious nature of the error. It doesn't change the reality that some take error into the realm of heresy. And it doesn't change the reality, the historic reality, that those in the paedo-baptist error historically, reformed men and women historically in the paedo-baptist error, actually persecuted to the point of death those whom they call the Anabaptist, rebaptizers, which would be us. Those who say believer's baptism or credo-baptism is the biblical baptism. Therefore, when you come to repentance and saving faith in Christ, it is that point that you are rightly and biblically baptized. Not only did Rome put credo-baptist, those that they called Anabaptist, rebaptizers. Why? Because Rome baptized all the infants. The true church of Jesus Christ recognized that the baptism of infants is no baptism at all. Therefore, the true church of Jesus Christ said, you must be baptized. Rome said, oh, that is being rebaptized. Now, the true church says, no, that's being baptized for the first time. Sadly, not only did Rome make that argument, but our Reformed forefathers made that argument because they had not come far enough out of Rome. And so they, much like Rome, baptized all the infants in their Reformed nations and city-states and whatnot, and they baptized them as part of the Reformed Church. And later on, when the Reformation continued, and the principle of the Reformation, known as Semper Reformanda, always reforming, and the principle of the Reformation, Sola Scriptura, played out Scripture alone, Scripture alone. So as the Church continued to reform, based upon the principle of Scripture alone, and discovered that, you know what, hey, this whole paedo baptism thing, this whole infant baptism thing, is nowhere in Scripture. Therefore, it's not baptism at all. Therefore, what we see is that when someone comes to repentance and faith in Christ, they are born again from above. They're a new creature in Christ. It's at that juncture that they enter into the baptismal waters and are immersed in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit as a picture of that spiritual rebirth. They were called the Anabaptists, and they were seen as heretics by both the Roman Catholic Church and the early Reformed Church, and both the Roman Catholic Church and early Reformed Church put them to death, beheaded them, burned them, took their property, persecuted them. And so thus, error, heresy, and blood in the Paedo-Baptist water. The text for today is a text we left off on last time from the book of Acts, Acts chapter 8. It is the defining text for credo-baptism or biblical baptism, Acts chapter 8, and it should sound familiar. It will definitely sound familiar once we start to read it, if you don't recognize it from last time or just in general, Acts chapter 8, verse 26. Let's read there together. Now an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, saying, Arise, and go toward the south along the road which goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is desert. So he arose and went, and behold, a man of Ethiopia, a eunuch of great authority under Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians, who had charge of all her treasury and had come to Jerusalem to worship, was returning and sitting in his chariot. He was reading Isaiah the prophet. Then the spirit said to Philip, Go near and overtake this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading the prophet Isaiah and said, Do you understand what you are reading? 
And he said, how can I, unless someone guides me? And he asked Philip to come up and sit with him. The place in the scripture which he read was this. He was led as a sheep to the slaughter, as a lamb before its shear is silent. So he opened not his mouth. In his humiliation, his justice was taken away. And who will declare his generation for his life is taken from the earth? So the eunuch answered Philip and said, I ask you, of whom does the prophet say this, of himself or some other man? Then Philip opened his mouth and beginning at this scripture, preached Jesus to him. Now, as they went down the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, see, here is water. What hinders me from being baptized? Then Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the son of God. So he commanded the chariot to stand still and both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water and he baptized him. Now when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord caught Philip away, so that the eunuch saw him no more. And he went on his way rejoicing, but Philip was found at Azotus, and passing through, he preached in all the cities till he came to Caesarea. Now again, we went through this last week, so we're going to go through it fairly briefly this week. You know, what led up to this, obviously, is the Great Commission, go therefore make disciples baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. That is rightly looked to as the foundation of both gospel ministry, the go therefore command, and then what do you do when you get there? You make disciples, and what do you do when they become disciples? You baptize them. That's obviously a credo-baptismal text, the Great Commission, Matthew 28, 18-20. But here we see it lived out. Here we see it actually in play We've got Philip on, on the gospel battlefield. We've got Philip uh, on the, the playing field. And, and we see how Acts 28, 18 through 20 is, is lived out. He goes. He proclaims Jesus to him. He, he responds positively to the message of the gospel. He himself says, see, here is water. What keeps me from being baptized? Clearly, clearly, Philip had declared it to him the gospel and the mandate of Jesus Christ to all those who were going to follow Christ, being saved by grace through faith, should then obey Christ in baptism. So the eunuch says, what hinders me? And Philip gives one qualification, nothing, nothing, if you believe with all your heart. If you believe the gospel with all your heart, if you've confessed Jesus Christ as Lord and you believe that God has raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. And if you believe with all your heart, nothing keeps you from being baptized. And he responds, indeed, that he believes with all his heart. He says, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. So they commanded the chariot to stand still, and both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water. That's part of baptismal reality, right? The, the real biblical baptism is to be immersed. The word in Greek, baptismal, means immerse. Uh, when you have the hand of a heretic priest, a Roman Catholic priest, sprinkling water on a baby, you have no baptism. No baptism occurred. You have a heretical priest carrying out something that the Bible does not define as baptism. Here, we have an actual minister of the gospel saying, if you believe the gospel with your whole heart, nothing hinders you from being baptized. The eunuch responds, amen, I believe. And they pull the chariot over and they go down into the water. And there, 
while it doesn't record this part of it, we trust in keeping with the rest of Acts and, of course, the Great Commission, he was baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. That is biblical baptism. That is credo baptism. That is believer's baptism, if you believe with all your heart. And there we stand. As biblical Christians, there we stand as reformed biblical Christians on the principle of sola scriptura, meaning the scripture alone defines our faith and practice. And as recipients of simple reformanda, always reforming, yeah, we don't just look to Luther. We don't just look to Calvin and say, what's good for them is good for us. They were one generation out of Rome. And they refined so much of theology and they certainly refined soteriology the gospel itself, coming out of Rome and saying salvation is not in sacrament, salvation is not in our work, salvation is in Jesus Christ by grace alone through faith alone. Thus they gave us those principles of the Reformation, sola gratia, grace alone, and sola fide, faith alone, and yet they were not done reforming. They were the first generation to come out of Rome. The Reformation wasn't over. Men like Zwingli later on kept reforming, going back to Scripture, and thus embraced believer's baptism, credo-baptism, and rejected the paedo-baptism of Rome. But in that early Reformed church, tragically, where there was no separation of church and state, and that was universal in the entire world, there was no separation of religion and state, People in that world lived and died by what they believed about God. So don't judge the reformers too harshly. And I would even counsel you not to judge Rome too harshly on that level. And that in that period of the history of the world, you lived and died by what you believed about God. It's easy now in our generation in the United States of America, in this great republic in which we stand or (laughs) in which we waver, to look back in history and and cast judgments. Were they wrong? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. We can judge that. And yet we likely would have stood with them. And in some ways, I would even say this, in some ways, I have a great level of respect for laws being passed and the populace supporting it that would bring penalty upon heresy, even to the point of death. It's that important. What you believe about God, what you believe about heaven and hell is so important That if you depart from the truth and delve into heresy, there will be great penalty. Now, mind you, I don't want uh, the state to bring the death penalty for heresy. And yet, in the theocracy of Israel, guess what there was? The death penalty for heresy. And it was right and it was good. And so be careful condemning our Reformed forefathers because they have a precedence to look to in our spiritual fathers in Israel and the theocracy that God established, where even taking the Lord's name in vain would have mother and father casting the first stone to put you to death. And so we don't want to judge them too harshly, but we do want to make a right judgment and say uh, it wasn't good for our Reformed forefathers to follow the Roman Catholic design of putting Anabaptists to death for being, quote, re-baptized, when in reality they weren't being re-baptized at all, but being baptized for the very first time, according to the light of God's Word, Holy Scripture. Are you still with me? Okay, we're tracking. We're good. All right. So that's believers. Baptism, of course, its foundation is in the Great Commission, Matthew 28, 18 to 20. And then we get that great clarity in Acts chapter 8. Let us hear and heed the words of warning and admonishment of C.H. 
Spurgeon. This is C.H. Spurgeon, and I quote, Everybody admires Luther. Yes, yes. But you do not want anyone else to do the same today. When you go to the zoological gardens, all admire the bear. But how would you like a bear at home? Or a bear wandering loose about the street? You tell me that it would be unbearable. And no doubt you're right. Come on, work with me. Spurgeon had a sense of humor. Did you miss it? So we admire a man who was firm in the faith, say 400 years ago. The past ages are a sort of bear pit or iron cage for him. But such a man today is a nuisance and must be put down. Call him a narrow-minded bigot or give him a worse name if you can think of one. Yet imagine that in those ages past, Luther, Zwingli, Calvin, and their uh, compeers had said, quote, the world is out of order, but if we try to set it aright, we shall only make a great row and get ourselves into disgrace. Let us go to our chambers and put on our nightcaps and sleep over the bad times, and perhaps when we wake up, things will have grown better. Such conduct on their part would have entailed upon us a heritage of error. Age after age would have gone down into the infernal deeps, and the (laughs) bogs of error would have swallowed all. These men loved the faith and the name of Jesus too well to see them trampled on. Note what we owe them, and let us pay to our sons the debt we owe our fathers. It is to it is today as it was in the reformers' days. Decision is needed. Here is the day for the man. Where is the man for the day? We who have had the gospel passed to us by martyr hands, dare not trifle with it, nor sit by and hear it denied by traitors who pretend to love it, but inwardly abhor every line in it. The faith I hold bears upon it marks of the blood of my ancestors. Shall I deny their faith for which they left their native land to sojourn here? Shall we cast away the treasure which was handed to us through the bars of prisons or came to us charred with the flames of Smithfield? C.H. Spurgeon quoted from John MacArthur's book, Ashamed of the Gospel, page 54. If you've not read Ashamed of the Gospel, shame on you. Get it, read it. Ashamed of the Gospel, John MacArthur, page 54, C.H. Spurgeon. C.H. Spurgeon says on Roman Catholicism, again, I love his clarity, his dogmatic reformer's clarity. We must have no truce, no treaty with Rome. War, war to the knife with her. Peace there cannot be. She cannot have peace with us. We cannot have peace with her. She hates the true church, and we can only say that the hatred is reciprocated. Not that you hate Roman Catholics, but the system that's damning them. We would not lay a hand upon her priest. We would not touch a hair of their heads. Let them be free. But their doctrine we would destroy from the face of the earth as the doctrine of devils. So let it perish, O God, and let that evil thing become as the fat of the lambs. Into the smoke let it consume. Yea, into the smoke let it consume away. It is impossible but that the church of Rome must spread when we who are the watchdogs of the fold are silent. And others are gently and smoothly turfing the road and make it as soft and smooth as possible that converts may travel down to the nethermost hell of popery. The velvet has got into our minister's mouths of late, but we must unrobe ourselves of soft raiment and truth must be spoken and nothing but truth. For all of lies which have dragged millions down to hell, I look upon this as being one of the most atrocious that in a Protestant church there should be found those who swear that baptism saves the soul. 
I come with much brevity and I hope with much earnestness to say that faith is the indispensable requisite to salvation. This faith is the gift of God. It is the work of the Holy Spirit. My hearers, if you would be saved, you must believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me urge you with all my heart to look nowhere but to Christ crucified for your salvation. Oh, if you rest upon any ceremony, though it be not baptism, if you rest upon any other man than Jesus, you must perish as surely as this book is true. Any church which puts in the place of justification by faith in Christ, another method of salvation is a harlot church. The mass is a mass of abominations, a mass of hell's own concocting, a crying insult against the Lord of glory. It is not to be spoken of in any terms but those of horror and detestation. Whenever I think of another sacrifice for sin being offered by whomever it may be presented, I can only regard it as an infamous insult to the perfection of the Savior's work. And that's from Spurgeon's sermon titled, War, War, War. Oh, may God give us Spurgeons again. And to quote Spurgeon about Spurgeons, we like Spurgeons that are long dead. We like reformers that are long dead. We like to quote them. You don't often hear the quotes I just gave you from Spurgeon, though. You don't often hear those. For so much of the church has made peace with Rome and its heresies which is hatred toward both Christ and the 1.3 billion Roman Catholics that are perishing under Rome's heresies. Dr. R.C. Sproul, a Presbyterian, Pado-Baptist, provides some clarity on Roman Catholicism in general. He says this, I typically direct these folks, these who convert from Christianity to Catholicism, I typically direct these folks to the sixth session of the Council of Trent. Trent was convened to deal with issues arising out of the Reformation. It is, as even Vatican II and the current catechism affirm, unchangeable dogma. And so the sixth session of the Council of Trent was a direct response to the Reformation. It's a heretical response to the true gospel being celebrated in the Reformation. And it is binding Roman Catholic doctrine to this day. In fact, if you read the current Roman Catholic catechism, it quotes the Council of Trent again and again as a binding, authoritative, ex-cathedra, thus saith the Lord through the Pope, document. So it's unchangeable dogma, not just for the church, but for all within its pale. And it, the sixth session says, that those who affirm that a man is justified apart from the works of the law should be damned. Hear that again. The sixth session of the Council of Trent declares that any man who affirms that a man is justified apart from the works of the law is damned. And when the Council of Trent declares that, they're not talking about the Ten Commandments. They're talking about the sacraments of the Roman Catholic Church. R.C. goes on. I have yet to meet a potential or actual convert to Rome who is willing to agree with this bald damning of the biblical doctrine of how we have peace with God. And yet, by joining Rome, they formally confess the truth of this damnable doctrine. In short, even if Rome beats the evangelical church hands down in principled activism, in intellectual and aesthetic fruitfulness, in unity of mind and purpose, so do the Shriners. In other words, even if the Catholic church beats out the evangelical church in its moral deeds, well, the Shriners do, says R.C., and I don't think that's actually true, but I get his point. The evangelical church is that place where the good news of Jesus Christ is not damned, but preached 
With Rome, it's exactly the opposite. The good news of Jesus Christ, salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, is actually damned. The anathema of God is pronounced on all those who believe that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, and not of works. They actually turn Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 on its head and say, if you believe, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, that you have been saved by grace, through faith, and not of works, lest you should boast that you're damned. Now that's bold. But Rome is bold. Satan is bold. And Rome is Satan's church. R.C. continues, Finally, with my friends who have made the jump, meaning jumping from biblical Christianity through apostasy to Roman Catholicism, converting, finally, with my friends who have made the jump, I seek to make sure they live with the consequences. That is, though they don't believe the sixth session of the Council of Trent, I make them live with it. That means that they that if they are right, they must not treat me as a brother, for I hold to damnable doctrine. If they are wrong, I must not treat them as a brother, for they hold to damnable doctrine. There is no option where we can both be right. My friends know that if they should repent, if they should return to the one true church, the evangelical church, if they should publicly and formally affirm their dependence on the finished work of Christ alone, I will rejoice with them. Until they do, however, we are not united in him. In other words, we're not brothers and sisters in Christ. In other words, I don't count them as Christians, nor can they count me as a Christian saved and on the way to glory. Lots of quotes in this. Bear with me. This is an extended quote. Pastor John MacArthur on infant baptism. I couldn't possibly say it better. He's written a great statement on it, and we're going to work through it together and then press on from there Please, please seek to stay attentive. If you're tired, pinch your thigh or something or have your wife poking the ribs. That's usually the men that are tired, it seems. And mind you, when I sit in the pew, I get tired. So I'm not judging you, not judging you. We're weak in the flesh, but willing in the spirit, I trust. So Pastor John MacArthur on infant baptism. Quote, infant baptism is not in the scripture. We really could stop right there. What is that? One, two, three, uh, seven words. Period. Done. Over. Finished. It's not in the Scripture. Put a fork in it, right? It's finished. Um, It's not in the Scripture. Stop already, would you? Where did you ever get this from? Well, they got it from Rome. That's where they got it. Give it up. Give it up. If it's from Rome and not in Scripture, it's abomination. It has the, the scent of hell on it. Give it up. Satan's the author of it, not Christ. Give it up already. So, Infant baptism is not in the Scripture. I can't stop on every sentence, (laughs) or we won't get through it. Scripture nowhere advocates or records any such thing as the baptism of an infant. It is therefore impossible to support infant baptism from the Bible. It is not in the Bible. There's not an incident of it. There's not a mandate. There's not a call for it. There's not a description of it. It doesn't appear. In fact, if you go back in history, and I'm about to do that, with you, you will find that historians have affirmed this fact. Theological leaders in generations past have affirmed this truth. What truth? That infant baptism is not in the Bible. He goes on. For example, Frederick Schleiermacher, the German theologian, wrote, quote, All traces of infant baptism which are asserted to be found in the New Testament must first be inserted there. Wow. Thank you for your honesty. And he would come from a Lutheran tradition. A Lutheran said that. But affirm, 
You would have to put it in the Bible because it isn't there. The host of German and front-rank theologians and scholars of the Church of England have united to affirm not only the absence of infant baptism from the New Testament, but the absence from apostolic and post-apostolic writers. In other words, it's not found in the New Testament. It's not found in the earliest history of the church. Nowhere found. He continues. This is the Anglican Church, the Church of England, that does infant baptism. This is the Lutheran Church that affirms and does infant baptism, saying it's not in the Bible. It arose, first of all, started appearing in the 2nd and 3rd century, became normalized in the 4th century. B.B. Warfield, who was a noted Presbyterian, Presbyterians do infant baptism, affirmed that infant baptism does not appear in the Scripture. We might think that if this is true, that the Calvinistic regulative principle might be applied. The regulative principle, the Reformation, said if Scripture doesn't command it, it is forbidden. So the regulative principle flows from sola scriptura. Scripture alone defines our faith and practice. If it's not found in Scripture, don't do it. Now, Calvin held to the regulative principle, but he didn't apply it consistently, like so many other Reformed men with him. If Scripture doesn't command it, it is forbidden. That was called the regulative principle. Pastor MacArthur continues, How in the world did it stay when people recognized that it wasn't in the Bible? Well, it did. And it was no small issue. In point of fact, not only for 1,200 years until the Reformation was in place, the norm in the organized church, the Catholic church, but even through the whole of the Middle Ages, it continued through the Reformation and out the other side even until today. And during the Middle Ages, severe ecclesiastical laws were created as part of the civil code. In Europe, nations were divided. There were Catholic nations or countries and Protestant countries, and there was no separation of church and state. The church and state were one great sort of monolithic power. There were Catholic states, and there were Protestant states. And everybody in a Catholic state was Catholic by virtue of infant baptism by the hand of a priest. And everybody in a Protestant state was a Protestant by virtue of Protestant infant baptism. And so, if you were in the country, you were not only under the civil code from a social standpoint, but you were under the civil code from a religious standpoint. And re-baptism, re-baptizers were called Anabaptists. That's what Anna means. Again, re-baptizers. And if you were a re-baptizer of someone who was baptized as an infant, that was a capital offense. That's right, a capital offense. It was an act against the state, against the state, church, and you could pay with your life. It was considered a heresy worthy of death. Anybody who violated baptism as ordained in their country, whether a Catholic or a Protestant country, came under the punishment of this civil code. This was around for a long time. If you go back to the year 391, you read the following order from the emperors, quote, whoever forsakes the holy faith and desecrates the holy baptism through heretical superstition shall be excluded from human society. Excluded from human society. In other words, if you go against infant baptism, you're excluded from human society, may give no judicial evidence, can, as has been before prescribed, make no will. You couldn't leave a will. You couldn't pass down property. Take possession of no inheritance or be appointed heir by no one. So if you came along and said, believers need to come to the place of faith in Christ and then be baptized, which is what the New Testament teaches, you were persona non grata in your society. The document also 
This translated into English says, quote, We would also banish such person to a far distant place if we did not deem it a more severe punishment to make him dwell among men without having the pleasure of fellowship with them. But he shall never regain his former legal capacity, nor can he at any time make amends for his crime by repentance, nor hide the same under invented evasions and excuses, because those who profane the faith which they placed in God as traitors to the divine mysteries associated with the unbelieving cannot be justified by tissues of lies. For one comes indeed to the help of the fallen and the erring, but to the infamous who profane the holy baptism, no amelioration can procure mitigation as in the case of their offenses. You're done, says MacArthur, if you affirm any other than infant baptism. You are finished in the society. You are persona non grata. He continues, A law of the emperors, Honorius and Theodosius II, in the year of 413, says, quote, If any person is convicted of having undertaken the rebaptism of a member of the Catholic Church, the one who has committed this shameful crime together with the one provided he is of accountable age who has allowed himself to be baptized, shall be punished with death without mercy. So both the baptizer and the baptizee shall be put to death without mercy. They executed the person who did the baptizing and the person who was baptized. As a result of the execution, something else would follow, the confiscation of all possessions. Further quoting from the writer Worms, Quote, Originally, indeed, these severe laws of the civil code were not issued for the defense of infant baptism, but were to secure the existence of the state church against rebaptism in any Christian circles. And the property of such persons was confiscated. They were branded violators of the civil law, punished by death and the loss of all property. You can imagine how that stifled believers' baptism. You can imagine how that stifled a ministry of God's word. There have always been those who believed in baptism. As the New Testament teaches it, Bohemian brethren, Waldensians, pre-Waldensians, the broad name of Anabaptists, which was a nickname meaning rebaptizers. And as I said, the Reformation didn't provide any respite for this. We read, quote, But of these ideals, the Reformation period had little understanding, and even in the newly formed Protestant churches, freedom of conscience remained an unknown thing. Not only was it again laid down exactly what and how one must believe, but all other opinions and convictions in matters of faith were suppressed with iron energy. Luther's original defense of the freedom of the Christian remained an unfulfilled demand. The right of free Christian individuality was an ideal that remained at the time unrealized. When was that realized in the world? After the revolution. That's when it was realized in the world. Praise God. For this United States of America and the Constitution upon which it stands, it's a gift of God that we would have religious freedom. And our forefathers in America meant that our religious freedom would be to worship the one true God and proclaim his one true gospel. But they separated the church and the state in the sense of uh, we're not going to put you to death for differences of issues like baptism. Oh, my. Pastor MacArthur continues, Luther's original defense of the freedom of the Christian remained an unfulfilled demand. The right to the free Christian individuality was an ideal that remained at the time unrealized. The Reformation did not bring to an end the zeal for bloody persecution. On the contrary, it began a new era of tribulation, tears, and blood, and not less indeed in the regions of the churches that it separated from Rome than where the Roman church than where the Roman church continued to assert its way. 
In other words, the animosity and the persecution of these people who wanted to do baptism the way the scripture says were persecuted both in Catholic and Protestant places. This persecuting zeal was directed very specially against the rebaptizers who rejected infant baptism and demanded a return to the original Christian mode of baptism taught in the New Testament. So sometimes you hear people say, quote, well, we need to agree on a lot of things, but baptism is a minor detail. It's not a minor detail if you're about to be drowned for believing it. The city law for Hanover, Germany, and other German cities with the specific approval of Luther and Melanchthon called for all rebaptizers to be beheaded. The Zwinglians and Baptists were to be flogged and banished from the city forever. They saw believers' baptism as disrupting the national church, posing a threat to national solidarity and being a blasphemous heresy that would corrupt others and break the power of the nationalized church. All over Germany, rebaptizers were called devilish vermin and executed. You know, it saddens the heart of a Protestant, let alone a Baptist like me, by conviction to read such judgments from the pen of a Catholic historian. In other words, the Catholic historians look and say they defend their own zeal, their own persecution, by saying, look, the Reformed Church was just as zealous in carrying out their own persecution. But truth must be honored. So the 16th century church as we know it, the Reformed Church that we love for its soteriology, the doctrine of the gospel, knew no tolerance for rebaptizers. Infant baptism was required as the only baptism and defended by fire, water, and the sword. You would have thought that if one of the great hallmarks of the Reformation was sola scriptura, that if they really believed that everything had to come from the scripture, they would have to set aside infant baptism since it wasn't anywhere in the Bible. But in spite of its absence in scripture, they defended it and practiced it as if it was biblical. And the pressure was that the Catholics had these united states or unified states that were unified both by political and military power, but also unified by religious power. And everybody was a Catholic because you were all baptized a Catholic. And so if you were under the tyranny of the church, and that way they controlled their populations, which made them powerful forces. And the Protestant states, that they didn't do that, if they didn't do that, would be weakened by disparity and diversion And they had to make sure that all their people were also part of everything. And there was absolute solidarity so they could defend themselves against the Catholic nations. So they held on to something that I am convinced that even Martin Luther knew wasn't in the Bible and wasn't really right. We're almost to the end of Pastor MacArthur's quote. I would have invited him here to preach, but he's busy. We expected the Roman Catholic Church to engage in such practices. Because the Roman Catholic Church is full of all things that aren't in the Bible, right? Of course, we know that. And they also believe in a whole source of revelation outside the Bible, which they call tradition or the magisterium, church councils, the Pope speaking ex cathedra. And it all carries equal weight with Scripture. And of course, they are the only true interpreter of Scripture so that they can twist and pervert the Scripture to make it say things that it obviously doesn't say. We expect that from the Roman Catholic Church. We expect the Roman Catholic Church to come up with things that aren't biblical. But what is sad is that the Reformed Church never really filled up the Reformation. And when you debate this sometimes with them, they say, quote, well, history tells us that the Reformers accepted that. And when I hear that, I always say history is not a hermeneutic. 
History is not a principle of interpretation. It doesn't matter what happened in history. A lot of things happen in history that can't be viewed as the revelation of God. Only honest hermeneutics, honest exegesis, and the Scripture can yield the true meaning of Scripture. And I might add this. If history is the standard, not only do they baptize infants, but they killed those who baptized adults. Is history the definer of morality and truth? It is not. Scripture is. Only honest hermeneutics, honest exegesis in the Scripture can yield the true meaning of Scripture. You can't read habits into Scripture. You can't read traditions into Scripture. History is no hermeneutic. History does not contribute to the true interpretation of Scripture. They will come back with this. Well, the Scripture doesn't forbid infant baptism. The Scripture doesn't forbid it. That is, a, that is really a very, very fragile argument. Are we supposed to affirm the reality of all kinds of things? Scripture doesn't forbid to justify that sprinkling babies as an act of Christian baptism is done because it's not forbidden in Scripture, and to standardize it and imprint it with divine authority, though it's a ceremony invented by men for the worst of political reasons, is then to open the way to any ritual, any behavior, any ceremony, any teaching, or anything else that isn't strictly forbidden in Scripture. Closing paragraph. I go back to the regulative principle. If it's not in the Scripture, you can't do it. Luther started out with his revolt against the Roman Catholic Church, drawing a line in the sand. He said this, quote, The church needs to rid itself of all false glories that torture Scripture by inserting personal conceits into the Scripture. No, he said, Scripture, Scripture, Scripture. For me, constrain, press, compel me with God's Word. That's a quote from Luther that's worth standing on. Sola Scriptura. Again, I'm so very thankful for Pastor MacArthur's long war against the Antichrist Church of Rome, and he stands virtually alone in that war, which is tragic. Like Spurgeon stood virtually alone in his day. Do you know, some of you may not know, Spurgeon was thrown out of his own Baptist denomination for his war for the true gospel of Jesus Christ. He was thrown out, not just by strangers or fellow pastors, but his own brother led the charge against him. Spurgeon was a hero, a warrior for Christ, willing to stand alone for Christ against all others if need be. God bless him. Now, I said error, heresy, and blood in the Pado-Baptist water. Let's consider dangerous error. The Lutheran church, the Missouri Synod, of the Lutheran Church, which is considered the conservative Lutheran Church, says this about infant baptism, and I quote, question, this is on, from their doctrinal statements, question, can you please clarify the Lutheran view of baptism and its purpose? Does the child become a Christian when baptized? Answer, Lutherans believe that the Bible teaches that a person is saved by God's grace alone through faith in Jesus Christ alone, and all of God's saints said, Amen! Amen. But what you'll find in these Reformed circles, while they declare that soteriologically, when it comes to their practice of baptism, we have a conflict. They go on. The Bible tells us that such faith comes by hearing, Romans 10, 17. Jesus himself commands baptism and tells us that baptism is water used together with the Word of God, Matthew 28, 19 through 20. Because of this, we believe that baptism is one of the miraculous means of grace. Baptism is a miraculous means of grace. So what do they just say about baptism? Baptism has power. 
through which God creates and or strengthens the gift of faith in a person's heart. So why do you baptize infants? Because we believe baptism is a means of God's grace by which He creates faith in the heart. What are we getting into now? Incredibly dangerous error. They continue. Terms the Bible uses to talk about the beginning of faith include conversion and regeneration. Although we do not claim to understand fully how this happens, we believe that when an infant is baptized, God creates faith in the heart of that infant. Now, that is so Romish. That, that is popish doctrine. That is, that is so close to just straight-out heresy. It's hard to distinguish between danger, 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 and just heresy. I, I have a difficult time. It kind of depends on the day, actually, whether I'm willing to say that's straight-up heresy or danger. And forgive me for being somewhat double-minded. I guess when I'm, when I'm feeling extra gracious, which I don't know if that's gracious, then I'll say it's dangerous. What you're saying is that the baptismal waters, again, the sprinkling of water on an infant, from the hand, in this case, of a Lutheran pastor, produces saving faith in an infant? That is nowhere found in Scripture. That is another gospel that is so dangerous, if not outright heretical. I just I don't see how it's not heresy. They continue... The faith of the infant, like the faith of adults, also needs to be fed and nurtured by God's Word. Infants don't have faith, saints. This is a lie. Infants don't have faith. They do not have the cognitive ability to understand who God is, to understand the holiness of God, the sinfulness of sin, and Jesus Christ, fully God, fully man, crucified for sinners, buried and resurrected on the third day as the only Savior. And it's nonsense. And they recognize that it's nonsense by saying things like, um, although we do not claim to understand fully how this happens. We can't logically give you any real defense of how this could be, but we're going to declare it so anyway. Without reason or logic or scripture to back us up, we're going to declare it anyway. We come empty-handed before you with this, I'm not feeling generous, heresy, another gospel. Now, are there Lutherans that are saved? Of course there are. Of course there are. But they can't really believe this, not in the way it's written. They can't. If they put faith in their baptism, or they're putting faith in the baptism of others and not faith in Christ alone, then they have nullified grace. Galatians 5, 4 applies for everyone. Roman Catholic, Lutheran, Presbyterian, Baptist, doesn't matter who you are. You have become estranged from Christ. You who tend to be justified by law, you have fallen from grace. Galatians 5, 4. When you mix Jesus with law, whoever's law, the Pope's law, Luther's law, Chuck's law, mix salvation by grace alone through faith alone in Jesus Christ with any law, and you must do this, and you must be circumcised, Galatia, and you must uh, not eat those things, Galatia, right? What did Paul do? He came to the door and pronounced a double anathema upon them. Why? Because they mixed faith in Jesus Christ. They didn't deny salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. They merely added dietary restrictions to faith in Jesus Christ and circumcision to faith in Jesus Christ. And Paul came through the door, kicking it down, and pronounced a double anathema for bringing another gospel that is not another. The Missouri Synod continues, the faith of the infant like the faith of adults, and that's just a nonsense statement, also needs to be fed and nurtured by God's word. Lutherans do not believe that only those baptized as infants receive faith. Well, that's good. Faith can also be created in a person's heart by the power of the Holy Spirit working through God's Word. Oh, that's nice. 
So faith can also be produced in a person's heart by the way the Bible says. Faith comes by hearing, hearing the Word of God. But we like the baptismal way for infants. But don't worry, you can also do it the biblical way. This is backwards. They're, they're putting their dangerous error slash heresy ahead of the actual biblical truth. Giving it the favorable spot. It continues, It is no less a miracle of God's grace at work that an adult should believe by hearing the words of the gospel than that an infant should receive through baptism the spirit who creates the very faith by which one receives incorporation into Christ. That, that is Romish. That, that is a near quote of Rome's heretical catechism. That at baptism, the Holy Spirit does what? Creates the very faith by which one receives incorporation into Christ, that you've been united to Christ, become a member of His universal church, you've been regenerated. I mean, it's just, the language is nearly identical. That's heretical doctrine. Yeah, I came into this thinking I was going to call it dangerous. Can't do it. That's heretical. Now, many Lutherans don't believe it to that extent. They don't. But many do. And we need to love them enough to distinguish and say, hey, my friend, Where is your faith actually resting? Is it in that baptism or in Jesus Christ and His finished work? Does tetelestai mean anything? Does it is finished mean anything? Or is that just a nonsense statement that Jesus made on the cross and we can add stuff to it? We can add dietary restrictions. We can add circumcision. We can add baptism. We can add communion. We can add confession to a priest. We can add last rites. We can add all seven sacraments of Rome and let's make up a few more. No, it is finished means it is finished. And when you come to Christ's finished, perfect work of redemption and you add anything, you haven't helped it. You haven't aided it. You haven't perfected it. You've denied it. You've denied it. You don't trust in Christ and His finished work. You've added this other thing. It's all of grace or none of grace. It's all of faith or none of faith. It is grace alone and faith alone, not just grace and faith. Do you get the difference? The Roman Catholic Church believes in grace, sure. They believe in faith, sure, but not alone. They believe in merit, that you are earning salvation through your works. But the Bible is clear that all of our works are filthy rags that come forth from a heart that is deceitful of all things and desperately wicked, which is why we trust in Christ alone and His finished work. There's a growing counter-reformation in Reformed circles. It's tragic. And some will remain in Reformed churches and never graduate to Rome, but the doctrines they're believing are Romish. And many will, after a while, say, you know what, why, why don't I go all the way over to Rome? They've got the pure stuff. I, I'm just toying with it. They've got the real full deal. And, you know, all that papal succession, all the way back to Peter, right? Wrong. But that's their claim. The Reformed Church in America on infant baptism, this is from their doctrinal statement. Why does the RCA baptize infants if they don't know what's going on, if infants don't know what's going on? The RCA does so because baptism is a sign and seal of God's covenant of grace with us and our children. Baptism is the visible word of God that we are cleansed in Christ's blood, buried with Him unto death, that we might rise with Him and walk in newness of life. Okay, that's not actually an answer. So why do you baptize infants? Because it saves them is really what they just said. 
We baptize infants because it's a sign and seal of God's covenant of grace with us and our children. Baptism is the visible word of God that we are cleansed in Christ's blood, buried with him unto death, and that we might rise with him and walk in newness of life. If that has happened to you, what are you? You are a Christian. You're born again. You're a new creature. You're a member of Christ's universal eternal church. That's so Romish. And that's the Reformed Church of America. They continue, the Reformed Church of America baptizes infants as well as older children and adults. The journey of faith that begins in individual baptism continues in the church community. In the RCA, baptism is always performed in the context of the congregation of God's people, as if that makes it right. Baptism is the mark of corporate as well as individual faith. Corporate faith? So the corporate faith of the church saves the baby that's baptized? The congregation commits itself to the spiritual nurture of the infant, child, or adult being baptized. Incredibly dangerous. And yet, if you ask them what the gospel was, they would say salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. There's such an amazing confusion there. And that's why I lend many men and women in these systems, in these churches, I lend them the benefit of the doubt if they will clarify as to where they stand, but so often you hear them placing faith, saving faith in baptism. Sometimes an adult that clearly, clearly is apostate, clearly is living in wicked sin, the scriptures would give you no confidence in their salvation. First Corinthians 6, 9 through 11 would, would say, no, they're not saved. They're not in the category of verse 10, 1 Corinthians 6, 10, such were some of you. They're, they're still practicing and living in sin. They're not evidencing being born again. And they would say, well, it, they were baptized. I've heard such testimonies when men die after a long life of alcohol or drug abuse, they die of an overdose or they die in a drunk uh, driving accident or they die literally in a puddle of their own vomit and at least they're not suffering anymore. The lamenting parents would say, which I, I understand you know, in, this, in their sorrow, um, but that's, that's not biblical and it's not safe for the living to say you can live a life that's totally opposed to Christ, but hey, at least they were baptized as an infant, and so now they're in heaven. And I get that from a Roman Catholic, I do, but I don't get that at all from a Reformed man or woman who claims to hold to sola scriptura, because that's nowhere found in Scripture. Scripture condemns that idea. Oh, we've got just a few minutes left. There's a rising star in the Reformed movement, a rising star and. And the G3 conference that Josh Bice puts on every year, and, and I fear even he might be making inroads into the Shepherds Conference, conservative, biblical, reformed circles, and that rising star is Doug Wilson. And Doug Wilson holds to a heretical position on infant baptism. He holds to essentially Rome's position on infant baptism, and it needs to be exposed. His influence needs to cease. A Catholic author wrote this about Doug Wilson and his position. He says this, the crypto, this is the title of the article, The Crypto-Catholicism of Douglas Wilson and the Moscow Movement. His church is in Moscow, Idaho. And it's a movement. It's not just a church. It's, it's gaining greater and greater influence. The Crypto-Catholicism of Douglas Wilson. This is a Catholic saying this. And his name is Dr. Taylor Marshall. He continues, I picked up a copy of Doug Wilson's book, Reformed is Not Enough. Briefly put, the book as diluted Catholicism cloaked under a Genevian ground. Geneva is where Calvin ministered. Doug Wilson's book, Reformed is Not Enough, briefly put, the book is 
diluted Catholicism cloaked under a Genevan ground. And this Roman Catholic author is right. He's right. He goes on, Mr. Wilson also has affection for things that sound medieval. He has founded the new St. Andrew's College, which is not based on devotion to the saint, but does sound old world and sounds oh so ever cool to the postmodern Protestant. He also founded the Gray Friars Hall, a three-year seminary. Again, Gray Friars Hall has no connection to the Franciscan order. Gray Friars is a nickname for Franciscans, though. But the name also sounds very cool, especially to Calvinistic 22-year-olds who are looking for the Hogwarts experience. Reformed is not enough is essentially a manifesto on baptism. He speaks about the Lord's Supper, but he is primarily trying to establish baptism, establishes the boundaries of the church. However, Mr. Wilson won't come out and admit that he is essentially endorsing what amounts to the historic Catholic doctrine of baptism. Sometimes Mr. Wilson wears his Catholicism on his sleeve, New St. Andrews, Greyfriars, And yet when he comes too close, he mocks and misrepresents the Catholic faith. He defends his Reformed credentials while lurking in the shadows of crypto-Catholicism. The book makes a case for Mr. Wilson's conviction that baptism is an objective, performative act that communicates grace in the context of the new covenant of Christ. And I won't read that whole article, but when a Roman Catholic says, hey, look, that Reformed preacher over there, he's... He's preaching our doctrine. I tend to believe him. The, the Catholic author is celebrating this, but he's also pointing out that um, there's kind of a deception going on there, kind of a wolf in sheep's clothing thing going on there where he preaches Catholic doctrine, but then he pulls back and says, wait, 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 I'm reformed, I'm reformed. I, I've got sheep's clothing. Doug Wilson himself said this in an interview titled, Are Roman Catholics Our Brothers and Sisters in Christ? Well, this ought to be informative. Douglas Wilson, quote, Baptism into the triune name means that what God says it means and not what the men performing it say or think about it. Let God be true and every man a liar. So then Trinitarian baptism, baptism into the triune name, places an individual into an objective covenant relationship with Christ. This does not mean he's automatically regenerate or that he's necessarily among the elect. The conclusion is that I believe faithless Roman Catholics are in fact members of the new covenant. Otherwise, how could they be covenant breakers? What? And again, that's so incredibly convoluted. So they are members of the new covenant, but not necessarily regenerate or elect. To be a member of the new covenant, biblically speaking, would mean that you're born again from above, would mean that God has regenerated you and the law of the Lord is written upon your heart. The new covenant has a meaning, meaning, and God has given it. And so to say that Roman Catholics were baptized. By the way, they're not baptized. They're sprinkled by water as infants. But to say that Roman Catholics were baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are members of the new covenant. And he goes on to say, are indeed our brothers and sisters in Christ, but may not actually be regenerate and may not actually be elect, is incredibly confused and convoluted, incredibly dangerous, and frankly heretical. And he goes well beyond that in several other interviews, but once again, I preach myself out of time. I'll have to address this in another venue or perhaps in another message, although I can't see preaching a third message on this topic. So here is your brief warning. Doug Wilson is dangerous. His fame is growing. His influence is growing. His doctrine is dangerous and at times heretical. He is not sound. He is not safe. 
do not follow that rising star. If you want a broad ministry that will bless you, look to Pastor John MacArthur. If you want a broad ministry that will bless you that's in the Reformed Presbyterian category, even a Pado-Baptist, then look to the deceased R.C. Sproul, who's no longer a Pado-Baptist, praise God. The Lord has corrected that. He's in heaven. (laughs) So, be on guard. Baptism matters. The doctrine of baptism matters. And God's word is clear, and there have been men for centuries confusing it dangerously and confusing it heretically. We want to stand in the light of the word. Matthew 28, 18 through 20 is clear light. Acts chapter 8 is clear light. What keeps me from being baptized? Nothing, if you believe with your whole heart. There we stand. And anyone who comes convoluting it, contrary to Doug Wilson's quote of this in his context, let God be true and every man a liar, I turn that right back around on Doug Wilson. Yes, let God be true and every man a liar. And any man who's being praised by Roman Catholics for his doctrine of baptism is the liar. They've joined Rome's lie. May God protect his church from this influence right here locally and at large. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for the light of your word. We thank you, Father, for faithful reformers, for faithful preachers of your word today and throughout the centuries historically. We pray that each one of us, Lord, by your grace, would stand on the firm foundation of Christ and the Holy Scriptures, and that we would not be moved to the left or the right, that we would stand there resolutely, dogmatically, out of love for Christ, out of love for neighbor. And Father, we pray you grant Doug Wilson and those following his false teaching repentance. We pray, Father, that his influence would not grow but diminish, Lord, that he would not be able to further these Romish doctrines in your church as a counter-reformer in sheep's clothing. And we commit it all to you for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.